This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start off reading from JTA, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The first article, a major Israeli city is just nine miles from Gaza. Some Americans are choosing to move there anyway, by Linda Gradstein, Ashkelon, Israel. When people ask Nahama Greenfield why she and her husband chose to move just nine miles from Gaza in June, less than a month after Israel's latest conflict with Hamas, she usually jokes that they were looking for a little excitement. But the potential for dark humor isn't what drew her to Ashkelon, a burgeoning Israeli city that was bombarded with hundreds of rockets from the coastal strip earlier this year, killing two people. Greenfield, a retired physiotherapist with two sons in Israel, says her family appreciates Ashkelon's communal feel, and she isn't phased by the prospect of violence, which poses a risk of some kind to almost every part of the country. We lived through 9-11, and my husband was in the city that day, she said. I've been to Israel many times, and I always felt safer here than in the U.S. There is fear, of course, but the reality is that up north, there is Lebanon. And just last night, there was a shooting in Jerusalem. That attitude is common among Ashkelon's English-speaking immigrants, whose numbers appear to be slowly growing despite the violence. When Rabbi Matt Futterman, who used to lead Ashkelon's conservative synagogue, arrived in 1986, he estimated that the city had only a few dozen English-speaking immigrants referred to in Israel collectively as Anglos. Thirty-five years later, that number has risen to around 500, according to Stephen Epstein, who moved here a year and a half ago and has since tried to recruit more Anglos to the city. Ashkelon still isn't a main draw for the thousands of Americans who move to Israel each year. Just 75 Americans have moved from the U.S. to Ashkelon since 2017, according to statistics from Nefesh Benefesh, a nonprofit that manages American immigration to Israel. That's compared to more than 1,000 American immigrants in total who have moved in the same period to the central Israeli cities of Ranana and Modi'in, both of which has, have historically been popular with Anglos. The statistics do not include American immigrants who have moved to Ashkelon from another city in Israel. To the Anglos living in Ashkelon, the intimacy of the city's English-speaking community is part of its appeal. After serving at the conservative synagogue's pulpit, Futterman and his wife decided to move back to the U.S. to care for aging parents. But when it came time to retire, they returned to Ashkelon. Their commitment to the city was tested in May when a missile shot from the Gaza Strip slammed into the building directly behind theirs, killing Sumia Santosh, 32, a caregiver from India. Later that day, Nella Gurevitz, 52, was killed in a separate rocket attack on the city. Futterman spent that day running back and forth from their living room to the fortified room in their apartment, hoping that their building wasn't next. We had a couple of scary moments, Futterman says, and once we heard that someone had been killed and we saw the electricity was out, our kids insisted that we leave Ashkelon and go stay with them. They rode out the rest of the 11-day conflict at their daughter's home in Mazkeret Batya, a small town in central Israel. But Futterman says that if his kids hadn't insisted, he might not have left. And he still sings Ashkelon's praises. The city is small and gorgeous, and you can get from one end to the other with no traffic, he said. 
there are good schools and good restaurants. A lot of English speakers are social workers, psychologists, and teachers. The gradual flow of English-speaking immigrants has spawned multiple English-language Facebook groups for Ashkelon residents, as well as a community website in English. In recent years, more and more of the city's restaurants have translated their menus to English. It's for people who are drawn by the sea and also want an Anglo community, Epstein said. Because of COVID, many people are working from home and going into the office just once or twice a week. Immigrants aren't the only ones moving into the city. Ashkelon's overall population has exploded in recent years. When the Footermans came in 1986, there were about 50,000 people living here. Today, the population has tripled to nearly 150,000, making it Israel's 12th largest city. The population boom came in part due to the launch of a direct hour-long train line between Ashkelon and Tel Aviv in 2013, which made the city more accessible to those who work in Israel's economic capital but want less expensive housing. A three-bedroom apartment in Ashkelon costs less than half of what it would in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. In the years after Israel's founding, large numbers of, Iz of Mizrahi immigrants, or Jews with roots in the Middle East, settled in the city and still make up the majority. But the city's Anglo community also has a relatively deep history. Ashkelon was originally planned by members of the South African Jewish community as a garden city similar to those found in South Africa. David Zwebner, a South African immigrant who is writing a book about Ashkelon and has become a real estate agent in the city, says the Jewish community in South Africa approached the nation Israeli government with offers of financial help, and Gold Meyerson, later Meyer, told them to design a city for us. Ashkelon's South African legacy is evident in its large parks and streets, which are named for places like Cape Town and Johannesburg. The city, more than others in Israel, is crisscrossed by wide roads with little traffic. Ashkelon is almost the same size as Tel Aviv, but with just one quarter of the population, Epstein said. The city has so many open green spaces that foxes roam some of the parks and empty lots at night. Zwebner said real estate prices are rising rapidly despite the rocket fire, nearly all of which is intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system. In the building where he's selling units, two years ago, four-bedroom apartments were going for about $420,000. Today, they have jumped to $750,000. But Greenfield feels like Ashkelon has still retained its homey feel. Five months after arriving, she has joined a craft group and a women's walking group. Neighbors have been friendly, inviting them for Shabbat meals. Everyone has been incredibly kind, she says, even the people in the bank even in the supermarket. They have just gone above and beyond what could be expected. Next, from JTA Philadelphia official accused of making anti-Semitic comments resigns by Shira Hanau. A top official in Philadelphia city government resigned last Sunday after making anti-Semitic remarks, including referring to the Holocaust movie Schindler's List as Jewish propaganda and creating a hostile environment for staff, according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Michael Rashid had served as Director of Commerce for the City of Philadelphia since November 2020. Today I offered and Mayor Jim Kenney accepted my resignation as Director of Commerce. My continued service would serve as a distraction from the work of the department which is far too important to the city and region, Rashid said in a statement. 
I also have had the opportunity to speak with leaders in the Jewish community of Philadelphia and apologize for my previous comments, which were inappropriate and insensitive. I look forward to future engagement with the community going forward. Several Jewish organizations, including the American Jewish Committee and the local Jewish Federation, had called on the mayor to fire Rashid after reports of his comments about Schindler's List, as well as his social media posts uh, as his social media posts began to surface. In one Facebook post, uh, post, Rashid quoted Malcolm X calling Jewish neighborhoods Jewtown, according to the Philly Voice. Kenny, earlier this week, stood side by side with leaders of the Jewish community to condemn the rise of anti-Semitism. If there is no room in the city for anti-Semitism, as Mayor Kennedy sa Kenny said, then Mr. Rashid should be removed from office immediately. Michael Balaban, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of Greater Philadelphia, said in a statement according to the Jewish Exponent. In New York, Israeli minister promises progress on Western Wall's non-Orthodox prayer space by Ben Sales. Israel will set plans in motion to renovate the non-Orthodox prayer space at the Western Wall, an Israeli official said Tuesday in New York. The current Israeli government is expected to implement an agreement shelved under former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that would expand an area of the holy site where men and women could pray as they please. But speaking to journalists at the Israeli consulate in New York City, Diaspora Affairs Minister Nachman Shai said that before it formally implements the 2016 agreement, the government plans to do more modest physical upgrades to the site. They include expanding physical access to the western wall itself, most of the area is close to the wall but not adjacent to it, and repairing some physical damage to the prayer area. The non-Orthodox section was temporarily closed in 2018 when it was struck by a 400-pound boulder that broke off from what is a 2,000-year-old retaining wall surrounding the Temple Mount complex. The government will continue the construction that was initiated in 2016, Shai said. There are a few stones that they will have to remove. The 2016 Western Wall Agreement was raised as part of a broader update Shai gave on his work, which is focused on strengthening ties between global Jewry and Israel. Israel's recently passed state budget doubled his ministry's budget, including funding earmarked for non-Orthodox groups. Prayer arrangements at the Western Wall and ensuring the rights of non-Orthodox groups have historically been of interest to American Jewish leaders, especially non-Orthodox leaders, frustrated with the Orthodox control of religious affairs in Israel. Shai is in the United States to speak at the annual conference of the Israeli-American Council. Shai said one of his top priorities is engaging Israelis living in America, regardless of whether they're thinking of moving back. We have to open channels of communication between them and us, he said. They may decide what they would like to do in the future, whether to live in this country or to return to Israel. It's their choice. I don't interfere, but the very fact is that hundreds of thousands of them live in this country, and finally, they are organized. Shai also said that he feels Israelis need to take more of an interest in diaspora Jews after a history of disregarding the experiences of Jews outside of Israel. We don't teach the diaspora in school. We were ashamed of the diaspora for many years, he said. We tried to cut the roots of the Jewish people. 
You live in the diaspora. You did not belong to us. We built a new Jew. We built a new state. We built a new language. It's all true, but still, there's no present without the past, and there's no future without the present. So it's time to learn the roots, and it's time to learn about what Jewish communities all around the globe are about. Shai joined the government after Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett unseated Netanyahu in June. The non-Orthodox prayer space, a compromise that would allow, for example, women to pray with a Torah scroll without harassment from Orthodox authorities, has been a hot-button issue in Israeli politics for years. In 2016, Netanyahu brokered the compromise that would have expanded the non-Orthodox section, which is to the south of the main Orthodox-controlled plaza, and created a shared entrance for both areas. In 2017, he suspended the compromise under pressure from his Haredi Orthodox allies. The current government does not include Haredi Orthodox parties. In Israel for Miss Universe competition, Puerto Rican contestant reveals that her great-grandfather survived the Holocaust by Ron Campeas. When she won the privilege of representing Puerto Rico in the Miss Universe contest, Michelle Marie Colon spoke of her pride in making history as the first black woman from the territory to seize the honor. This week in Israel, where the contest is being held, she has been touting pride in another aspect of her heritage, her Jewish great-grandfather who escaped the Holocaust. Last week, Cologne posted a photo of her holding hands with Noah Kokva, the Israeli entrant into the contest beneath a wall covered with portraits of victims of the Holocaust. My great-grandfather, Rodolfo Cohn, was a survivor of the Holocaust, Cologne wrote. He moved to the Caribbean and met Dorilla Thomas, my great-grandmother empowered Afro-Caribbean woman, descendant of slaves who was the administrator of a farm at the time. Together they formed a solid family full of love, built upon empathy and resilience. She had told the story in an impromptu talk while the contestants toured Yad Vashem, the National Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem. Danny Diane, the memorial's chairman, posted a video on Twitter on Saturday and it soon went viral. I came here to Israel knowing that I would be more connected to my family because my great-grandfather actually escaped from the Holocaust and all of his other family members, his sisters, his brothers, even their daughters, four daughters, were killed in the concentration camps, especially in Auschwitz, Cologne said. Diane said Cologne, a 21-year-old pre-med student, surprised her fellow Miss Universe contestants and also Yad Vashem staff. Colon's comments come at a time when advocates are seeking to turn the pageant, scheduled for December 12th in Eilat, into a political referendum on Israel. Palestinian advocates have called for contestants to boycott the competition, but only Malaysia and Indonesia have so far committed to doing so. Meanwhile, South Africa's contestant is attending despite pressure from the South African government to boycott Israel. In addition, this year's competition will feature a contestant from the United Arab Emirates for the first time and a contestant from Morocco for the first time in decades. Both of those countries signed diplomatic normalization agreements with Israel in 2020. Next in JTA, Jeopardy! devotes entire category to Yiddish theater by Felissa Kramer. 
In recent years, Yiddish theater has enjoyed a remarkable resurgence, with Yiddish-language performances wowing audiences in New York, online, and, last month, Stockholm. But perhaps its biggest audience yet came on Thursday night, when Jeopardy! devoted an entire category to it. The iconic quiz show is seen by an estimated 8.7 million people every night, making it the most-watched syndicated show on the air. This week, the contestants are all college professors as part of the show's first-ever professors tournament, and the host is Mayim Bialik, the Jewish actress whose regular season run was just extended as the show figures out how to replace longtime host Alex Trebek, who died last year. Julie Williams, an English professor at Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Indiana, chose the first question in the Yiddish theater category after it appeared during Double Jeopardy, the show's second round. But it was Ed Hashima, a professor of history at American River College in Sacramento, California, who dominated. He correctly responded to four of the five clues, racking up points as he identified one play as the Yiddish King Lear, named the Jewish holiday of Purim as being tied to Yiddish theater's origins, and answered that Marlon Brando's acting teacher was Stella Adler, who grew up in a family of Yiddish theater royalty. Hashima also revealed a daily double in the category, allowing him to select his own wager. A smile broke across his face as Bialik read the clue. A surprise New York hit in 2018 was a Yiddish-language fiddler on the roof. This song becomes Benich bin a Rothschild. The response, of course, is If I Were a Rich Man, and Hashima added 2,400 to his already substantial lead. One could almost imagine Trebek humming this song's memorable theme, but Bialik offered no elaboration or commentary about the clues, unlike when Cholent was a Jeopardy question earlier this season, and she offered a short history lesson. One clue stumped all of the contestants who declined to buzz in. The play Kancha in America is about a woman wanting to learn this modern play. How I Learned to Do It is a non-Yiddish play Bialik read. The correct response, What is Drive, referring to the classic work by Paula Vogel, the Jewish playwright whose own passion for Yiddish theater has been a galvanizing force in her recent work. Speaking recently with the Harvard Divinity Bulletin about her play Indecent, which incorporates scenes written by the classic Yiddish playwright Sholem Ash, Vogel offered an insight about why Jeopardy's non-Jewish contestants might be so knowledgeable about what was until recently a niche ethnic entertainment. Yiddish is a language of yearning, a language of anxiety believe we've worked hard to communicate that love to the audiences, she said. We've had productions in Omaha, Nebraska, and Boise, Idaho, where Yiddish is rarely heard. Audiences have said they feel the emotion we are trying to convey. Next from JTA, Sackler named to be removed from Met Museum galleries amid criticism of the family's role in opioid epidemic by Ron Compeyas. New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art is removing the name of the Sackler family, whose pharmaceutical business was implicated in perpetuating the opioid epidemic from seven galleries. The Jewish family joined the iconic museum in announcing the decision Thursday. 
Our families have always strongly supported the Met, and we believe this to be in the interest, the best interest of the museum and the important mission that it serves. The descendants of the founders of the pharmaceutical giant Purdue Pharma said in a joint statement with the Met. A number of beneficiaries, including museums, have cut ties with the Sackler name ever since Purdue was accused of fueling the opioid crisis with deceptive Oxycontin marketing. The Metropolitan Museum announced two years ago that it would not accept new gifts from the family. In the statement, the Metropolitan Museum praised the Sacklers as among our most generous supporters and said their gesture in allowing their name to come down was gracious. The Sackler Wing includes the Temple of Dendur, the recreated ancient Egyptian temple that is perhaps one of the museum's most iconic exhibits. Mortimer and Raymond Sackler, who studied medicine abroad in the 1930s, became, uh, because of quotas limiting Jews from attending U.S. universities, turned Purdue into a pharmaceutical empire. A deal with the U.S. government led the Sacklers to dissolve Purdue in September and to pledge billions of dollars to address the epidemic. The Sacklers themselves are absolved of personal liability for the epidemic. The Medical School of Tel Aviv University also bears the Sackler name. Officials there have resisted calls to remove the name of the school's benefactors. Next from JTA, a Massachusetts town apologizes after using Christian menorah in holiday display by Felissa Kramer. A small municipal holiday event turned into a big problem for Medford, Massachusetts after a city worker included a menorah picture produced by Messianic Jews in a display about world religions. The suburb of Boston apologized for the display which appeared during last week's holiday extravaganza, a city event aimed at promoting local businesses. But the episode has left some local Jewish residents asking, not for the first time, whether they are truly considered a part of the local community. Medford, a city that is part of the dense core of Boston's metropolitan area, is home to Tufts University and claims as native sons both the author of Jingle Bells and Mike Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York City, whose family had to buy a home in the town surreptitiously to circumvent local anti-Semitism. Some Medford Jews felt like important progress had been made this year after the city school district, for the first time in recent history, canceled classes for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Sarah Beardsley, a Jewish resident in Medford for 30 years, said the community, the city, had recently sought to demonstrate that it values diversity. This is just another example of how that's really not the case, she told JTA, of the holiday display. The issue began shortly after the holiday extravaganza on Wednesday evening when the town posted pictures from the event. Along with photos with Santa, a wreath sale, and the lighting of the town Christmas tree, the holiday event featured a table inside City Hall with framed descriptions of holiday symbols. One set of pictures showcased the history of Christmas trees. Another featured the Kinara, the candelabra used during the African-American holiday of Kwanzaa, and a third showcased the menorah used by Jews during the holiday of Hanukkah. Although the table held an electric menorah with nine candles, the menorah in a photo placed on the table wasn't the one used by Jews during Hanukkah. 
Instead, it was a picture of a seven-branched menorah labeled with Christian terms. One branch was labeled cross, for example, while another was labeled resurrection. The image is widely available online as an illustration of messianic interpretations of the menorah. Messianic Jews are people who follow many Jewish practices while believing in the divinity of Jesus. No mainstream Jewish movement considers them Jewish. In Medford, some were concerned that a Messianic Jew was responsible for Jewish affairs within the municipal government or that City Hall had reached out to a Messianic Jew for guidance instead of to representatives of the local Jewish community. But according to a note posted in a local Facebook group by the City Hall staffer who said she had created the display, the image did not reflect an ideology at all. Instead, the staffer wrote she had come across the image while researching about religious traditions and thought it might be helpful for people attending the event. It quickly became clear to the city that that was not the case. Late Friday, it issued an apology on Facebook, and the photo of the table with the menorah has since been removed from Facebook. We sincerely regret the harm and are committed to learn from this mistake, the apology said. Going forward, we will consult faith and community leaders, include their experience and expertise in our event planning process, and ensure that every public-facing item is represented, uh, represented appropriately and accurately. The apology followed a day of meetings and conversations, according to Rabbi Bram David, who leads Temple Shalom in Medford. He and the synagogue's president sent statements to their community late Friday as Shabbat began. David wrote that he had spent the day speaking with other local rabbis, Jewish community members, and clergy from other religions. He also said he had reached out to Medford's mayor, Brianna Lungo-Cohn, to discuss the situation. She expressed deep regret on behalf of her staff and the mayor's office for this careless error, David wrote, noting that the mayor's office had received countless calls about the display. Giselle Ellis, Temple Shalom's president, said that she too was inclined to accept the city's apology, citing the example of Julian Edelman, the star Jewish ride receiver for the New England Patriots who retired this year. Edelman prom prominently sought to teach not shame a colleague who made anti-Semitic comments on social media. But Ellis also conveyed deep distress about the episode, which she said was a departure from past years when the city invited Temple Shalom to participate in planning the holiday event. That we have to explain why this is, off is offensive is frustrating. The lack of Jewish involvement in this event makes us feel invisible in the eyes of our city leader. That this horrible display was put up at City Hall makes us furious, she wrote, adding, I have heard this fury from many of you today. Among those responding was a newly elected member of the city council, Kit Collins, who is Jewish. To all those who spoke up about the erroneous and offensive depiction of a menorah displayed at last night's holiday festival at City Hall, I see you and I thank you. As a Jew, I understand how frustrating and painful it can be to have one's faith so egregiously misrepresented, tweeted Collins, who will be sworn in next month. I'm grateful that the administration responded swiftly to remove the offensive picture, Collins added. I'm sorry this happened, but I hope and expect that it will spur us to do better going forward at properly respecting 
representing and celebrating the many cultures that exist in Medford. And next from JTA, Fox News host says Christmas trees are about Jesus and Hanukkah by Ron Campeas. Hanukkah is over, but Jews may have another chance. A Fox News host explained that the Christmas tree represents the Christmas spirit and Hanukkah. Fox News host Ainsley Earhart made her interfaith declaration after a man was arrested for allegedly setting fire to the Christmas tree outside Fox News Channel headquarters in New York. It's a tree that unites us, that brings us together. It's about the Christmas spirit. It is about the holiday season. It is about Jesus. It is about Hanukkah. Earhart said on Fox and Friends, the morning show she co-hosts. It is about everything we stand for as a country and being able to worship the way you want to worship. It makes me so mad. Hanukkah commemorates the rededication of the Jewish temple several centuries before the birth of Jesus, and its main story is about a Jewish sect's resistance to assimilating into the dominant religious culture. The two holidays, Christmas and Hanukkah, are coincidental in their midwinter timings, but in little else. There is suggestive evidence in the New Testament, the Christian Bible, that Jesus attended a Hanukkah event. The party, described in John 10.22, was not the most successful of mixers. Some angry Jews confronted Jesus about his claim to Messiahhood, and it almost ended in a stoning. The apostle does not report any tree burnings, however. One man has been arrested in the Fox News tree burning, which fully engulfed the 50-foot structure shortly after midnight Wednesday. The right-wing network had dedicated its all-American tree, which had been decorated with red, white, and blue ornaments over the weekend. 17 BDS resolutions considered and 11 passed at U.S. colleges last year per ADL report by Shira Hanau. Student governments considered resolutions to boycott, divest from, and sanction Israel at 17 college campuses in the United States during the 2020-2021 school year, according to a new report from the Anti-Defamation League. The watchdog group, which released the data Wednesday as part of its annual reporting, called the BDS resolutions a cornerstone of anti-Israel campus activity during the last year. During a school year in which a May conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza was accompanied by widespread criticism of Israel on and beyond college campuses, the number of student governments entertaining BDS resolutions was not dramatically higher than in the recent past. Of the bills supporting the Israeli boycott, 11 passed according to the report released Wednesday. That was fewer than in the 2015-16 school year, according to the ADL's report about that year when it documented 23 BDS resolutions, of which 14 passed. The following year, student governments considered 14 BDS resolutions, passing 6. The year after that, 5 of 12 resolutions passed. In the 2019-2020 school year, just 4 BDS resolutions came before student governments, the lower number is likely explained by the pandemic's abrupt school closure. According to the U.S. Education Department, there are nearly 4,000 degree-granting post-secondary institutions in the United States, meaning that BDS resolutions were introduced at 0.425% of college campuses and passed at 0.275% of campuses last year. 
None has been implemented, noted the ADL, which also noted that in some cases university presidents rejected the student government resolutions. The ADL's position is that not all criticism of, anti of Israel is anti-Semitic, but that the BDS movement is. Its report concludes that anti-Israel activity on campus last year continued to span from, from legitimate criticism of Israeli government policies to expressions of anti-Semitism from some activists. Student leaders at at least two universities, the report notes, faced exclusionary calls because of their expressions of support for Israel and Zionism, and one of them resigned over it. As we saw accurately during the May conflict with Hamas, the anti-Israel movement's drumbeat of rhetorical attacks on Zionism and Zionists can truly hurt and offend many Jewish students, leaving them feeling ostracized and alienated, the ADL CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement accompanying the report. In a different report released this fall, the ADL found that one-third of Jewish college students said they had personally experienced anti-Semitism in the last year. Next from JTA, Jews were the creative forces behind West Side Story decades ago and today. Should they be? By Jordan Haim. In 1955, theater director Jerome Robbins approached writer Arthur Lawrence and composer Leonard Bernstein with a new idea for a Broadway musical, a contemporary retelling of Romeo and Juliet set among warring gangs of Jews and Catholics on New York City's Lower East Side. It would be called East Side Story, and it would take place at the turn of the 20th century during the holidays of Easter and Passover. But something wasn't working. The writers wondered if all they were doing was adding music to A.B.'s Irish Rose, an early 20th century play about an Irish Catholic girl and a Jewish boy who fall in love. The story didn't feel fresh enough. In his memoir, Lawrence recalled the moment East Side Story became West Side Story when he read a news headline that blared more mayhem from Chicano gangs. Thus, Robin's original idea morphed into a tale of a white gang, the Jets, and a Puerto Rican gang, the Sharks, clashing on the Upper West Side just a few years before the area was targeted for urban renewal. Bernstein, Robbins, and Lawrence remained the show's creative leads and later roped in Stephen Sondheim to write the musical's lyrics. All four men were Jewish, though they were no longer writing about Jews. West Side Story became one of the biggest Broadway musicals of all time. And by 1961, the film, co-directed by Robbins and Robert Wise, cemented the show's status as a classic of the musical form, even as it cast ethnically white players, uh, actors to play Latino characters, darkening their skin for the screen. Sixty years after the first West Side Story film was released, another two highly acclaimed Jewish creatives, Director Steven Spielberg and screenwriter Tony Kushner have returned to the material to helm a hotly anticipated remake. This new West Side Story, which is being released just weeks after Sondheim's death, retains the general arc of the original musical while making notable changes to the story and presentation, including casting Latino actors to play the Sharks and their significant others. Yet in the current cultural climate, when audiences are highly sensitive to on-screen depictions of underrepresented groups, new questions have emerged. 
were Spielberg and Kushner the right people to attempt a remake of West Side Story, or should that task have fallen to Puerto Rican creatives? And there is also a deeper question. Should the show, which some critics and academics have said is fundamentally outdated, even have been remade at all? The original show's transformation from a Jewish story to a Puerto Rican one mirrored the American Jewish community's own assimilation and shedding of its outsider status in the mid-20th century. By the 1950s, Jews were finding ways to assimilate into white America, while new concerns about radicalized violence among newer immigrant groups, particularly Latino communities, were bubbling up in the city. All of a sudden, all these questionably white groups at the beginning of the century are sort of coming together and becoming, in the case of the musical, a gang, a racial category, said Warren Hoffman, executive director of the Association for Jewish Studies and author of the 2014 book The Great White Way, Race, and the Broadway Musical. Puerto Ricans, black Americans, people of color becoming the new enemy in the U.S., so this is how whiteness is changing and what's happening in West Side Story, Hoffman told JTA. But rather than feel seen by their community's depiction in the original show and film, many Puerto Ricans instead felt disparaged. As a child, I found the music dazzling, but the overall message racist. Aurora Levens Morales, a Jewish Puerto Rican writer and activist, told JTA about her experience watching the 1961 film. I wasn't aware that it was created and directed by Jews, and that certainly makes the racist aspects of the film even more painful for me as a Jew. Morales said her classmates would mock her when the film came out. I used to be taunted at school with the lyrics, Puerto Rico, my heart's devotion, let it sink into the ocean. And the fact that Rita Moreno was the only Puerto Rican actor cast in the film always appalled me, although I think she's fabulous, and I always admired her, she said. The song Morales is referring to America is one of the most controversial in the 1961 film, though the lyrics mock the mainland United States and Puerto Rico in equal measure. Many listeners have taken offense at the way the Puerto Rican characters callously deride their homeland. Even Sondheim seemed hesitant about the project, at first declining to do the show because he reportedly said he had never been that poor and I've never even known a Puerto Rican. Puerto Rico has a substantial Jewish community. The island is home to an estimated 1,500 to 2,500 Jews. According to a 2016 demographic survey by Hebrew University, making it the largest and wealthiest Jewish community in the Caribbean. Most Puerto Rican Jews are descendants of Polish Jews who moved to the island from Cuba after Fidel Castro came to power in 1959. Many Puerto Rican Jewish families also migrated to the mainland United States during that time, mirroring broader Latino immigration patterns of the period. There are links between the immigrant communities, too. In her book, Medicine Stories, Morales defines the Jewish-Puerto Rican relationship as a history made in New York garment sweatshops, filled first by Eastern European Jews and then by Puerto Ricans in times of both solidarity and betrayal, when the price of upward mobility for white Jews was the abandonment of people of color. In 2018, when the West Side Story remake was in its early stages, Kushner and Spielberg held a Q&A at the University of Puerto Rico to hear out concerns about the new film's direction.
Kushner, in response to a question about America, said the thrust of the song reflected the creator's Jewish roots. They're using the Jewish immigra uh, immigrant experience, the notion that you look back from where you came from and go, yich, he said. For the 2021 film, the song's lyrics have been altered, its most offensive lines scrapped. Other changes include more conversations in Spanish with no English subtitles, as well as the hiring of numerous experts to guide authentic culture and slang. Those changes seem to have paid off. Early reviews, including from Latino critics, have been mostly raves, and critics are praising Spielberg and Kushner's adaptation choices. One prominent film critic even singled out the new version of America as a highlight. Those reactions would seem to fulfill the promises Spielberg made at the beginning of the film's production. The reason we've hired so many Puerto Rican singers and dancers and actors is so they can help guide us to represent Puerto Rico in a way that will make all of you and all of us proud, Spielberg told the crowd in San Juan. For his part, Spielberg, whose representatives did not return a request for comment, but who frequently references his own happy childhood memories watching the original film, has maintained that regardless of its problems, West Side Story is a timeless piece. That characterization rankles some. When someone says something is timeless, I'm not sure what they mean by that, because I think that shows are very particular about what they're trying to say, Hoffman says. The politics of West Side Story back in 57 are not the politics of the U.S. in 2021. Rebecca Gleiberman, a 29-year-old who grew up Puerto Rican and Jewish in Florida, says she has never felt fully part of either community. She didn't think much of West Side Story when she saw it as a child, but as an adult, you definitely get the sense that it's almost Puerto Rican caricatures that sort of make up most of the characters. Gleiberman says she's open to a, re uh, a new remake by two Jewish creators as long as it's done right. The bigger issue to her is watering down authenticity or playing into stereotypes to make a production comfortable for anything sitting in a, anyone sitting in a theater. Problem, she said, plagued another 2021 musical set in a New York Latino community in the Heights. Those felt like Hispanic caricatures and stereotypes to me, and that was written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, she said. I felt like that was kind of written in a way that was more digestible for her white audience so I don't know if it necessarily matters who's writing it. And next, an opinion piece from JTA. My teenage son wasn't surprised when anti-Semites attacked him on TikTok. That makes me angry. By Jessica Rusick Hoffman. Why does everybody hate us? My son Izzy asked me this question after a man with a machete attacked Jews at a Hanukkah party in Muncie, New York in 2019. Izzy was 12 years old when he flopped onto the couch, kicked up his feet, and asked the question no Jewish parent wants to hear. I spoke to him about the history of anti-Semitism, how it's always irrational, and how when we're hurt for being Jewish, we need to be even more outspoken in our Judaism. That to really be a bear Jew, like the Nazi hunting character in the revenge fantasy in Glorious Bastards, we stand up and fight back with pride. As Elsa says to Jojo in Jojo Rabbit, there are no weak Jews. I am descended from those who wrestle angels and kill giants. We were chosen by God. 
So when the anti-Semitic comments started to pour in after a TikTok video of Izzy laying to villain went viral earlier this month, he was somehow uh, somewhat prepared and sadly unsurprised. A few weeks ago, we went to New York for a wedding and stayed with my sister, Melinda Strauss, who shares videos about Jewish life and kosher food. With over 420,000 followers on her account, My Orthodox Jewish Life. Some of her followers had asked to see a video of someone putting on tefillin, the black box and leather straps used by Jews in their weekday morning prayers. When she saw Izzy about to daven, she asked if she could film him as he wrapped a tefillin around his head and arm. Izzy and his aunt joked all the time about her TikTok and how if he ever stayed at her house, he'd want to be featured, so he gladly obliged. At first, the comments were a combination of sweet and curious. Some people thanked her for sharing the beauty of her faith, and some wanted to learn more about tefillin. A week or two went by. And then Izzy wandered into the living room with a half-smile on his face. Mom, I'm famous, he quipped. He told me there were over 3 million views, and he had scrolled through over 2,000 comments and found lots of anti-Semitism. He sat down next to me. I opened the app and looked through it with him, mocking the really dark comments that included, that's it, to the gas chamber. Should have died in the gas chamber. Gas them all. Yo, Hitler is behind you. We also made jokes about the Jesus-specific comments that included, does he have to wear that to apologize for killing Jesus? Repent and believe in Jesus Christ. When do y'all crucify Jesus? Oh wait, y'all already did that. Izzy's sense of humor is perfectly suited to this classic Jewish coping mechanism of mocking anti-Semitic accusations. I recently read Shalom Aleichem's The Bloody Hoax and laughed with recognition at the description of Jews coping with a blood libel accusation by having faux Talmudic debates about the halakha or Jewish law of slaughtering Christian children to use their blood for matzah. Abacha does not deal with this issue because it is not a part of Judaism despite what anti-Semites throughout history have said. It is almost a rite of passage to be welcomed into this centuries-old tradition of using humor to respond to the irrational accusations the world throws our way. The comments included plenty of judgmental cracks accusing Izzy of being brainwashed, and those were the ones that bothered him the most. Because while he's used to hatred against Jews, he can't understand why anyone would think it's wrong for a Jewish kid to be brought up keeping Jewish practices. I'm not indoctrinated. I'm Jewish, he said with frustration. I'm quelling with pride, but I'm also angry. Izzy doesn't feel unsafe or shaken in his Jewish identity. He knows his parents have his back that we keep him physically safe and protected, and he isn't surprised that there is anti-Semitism, not even at 14. And that is why I am angry. As a mother and as a Jew, I am angry that Izzy was not surprised, and I am angry that this is the norm. I am angry that TikTok allows anti-Semitism to thrive in videos and comments and rarely takes down reported videos with notable exceptions being videos created by Jews that were bombarded with false reporting from anti-Semites. Melinda's account has been suspended on multiple occasions for videos about Shabbat and keeping kosher. I am angry that I have to help my children develop their coping mechanisms. I am angry that even though we managed to report and successfully remove a couple of the most vile comments, 
more have replaced them. The TikTok of Izzy Langitvillain now has more than 8 million views and over 13,000 comments. And yet I cling to a tiny glimmer of hope thanks to the non-Jews in the replies defending Jews and defending Izzy. And to bear Jews everywhere, laying to fill in every morning and refusing to cower. Jessica Rusak Hoffman is a Seattle based author. And her website is jessicarusakhoffman.com. And now we'll go over to the Times of Israel for more news. In Egypt, Lapid and Antiquities Chief returned 95 ancient relics smuggled into Israel by Lazar Berman. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid on Thursday presented his Egyptian counterpart, Sameh Shukri, with dozens of Egyptian relics that were illegally smuggled into Israel. Lapid met Shukri in Cairo after first holding talks with President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Eli Escozito, director of the Israeli Antiquities Authority, joined Lapid to hand over the 95 artifacts which included two stone tablets with hieroglyphic writing, a piece of a sarcophagus with hieroglyphics, papyrus documents, and dozens of small idols of Egyptian gods. The items were laid out on a table covered in a green tablecloth as Escozito and Lapid officially transferred them over to Egypt. Four of the relics were nabbed by Israeli customs agents in 2013 as an Israeli antiquities dealer tried to bring them into the country through Ben-Gurion Airport after purchasing them in Oxford, England. Israel alerted Egyptian authorities through Interpol, and after a legal battle, the relics were handed over to Israel in 2015. The other Egyptian artifacts were found in a Jerusalem antiquities dealership in August 2013. IAA and foreign ministry officials met with Egypt's ambassador in September of that year and agreed to conduct a joint investigation. The next month, 91 relics were seized from the shop. During the ensuing legal process, Egypt sent documentation of the artifacts and expert opinion from Yosef Hamed Khalifa, the director of Cairo and Giza for the Egyptian Tourism and Antiquities Ministry. As a compromise, the dealer handed the items over to Israeli authorities. The Antiquities Authority praises Foreign Minister Lapid's initiative and is happy it was able to help the Egyptian authorities return to the Egyptian people Egyptian cultural artifacts that were stolen from Egypt, Escozito said in a statement. Israel and the Antiquities Authority are interested in working in concert with the Egyptian authorities to protect archaeological treasures that belong to humanity's culture. It is vital to act to stymie the stealing of antiquities and the illegal trade in antiquities across the world. The IAA is eager to tighten cooperation with the Egyptian Supreme Council of Antiquities on Archaeology and Research. Earlier in the day, Lapid met with Sisi in Cairo where the two discussed the Iranian threat and Israel's attempts to reach a long-term ceasefire agreement with the Hamas terror group in Gaza. Lapid and Sisi spoke about Tehran's nuclear program and the threat to regional stability posed by its support for armed proxy groups, according to the foreign ministry. Lapid also uh, presented his vision for Gaza, which would offer economic incentives in return for an end to Hamas attacks, and discussed the issue of Israeli civilians and the remains of two Israeli soldiers being held in the Strip. 
Egypt is an especially important strategic partner for Israel, Lapid said in a statement after the meeting. My goal is to strengthen our security, diplomatic, and economic ties with Egypt. It is important to continue to work on the peace between the two nations. I thank President Sisi, whose contribution to the region and to the ties between us are of historic proportions for the hospitality and for the warm and open meeting. Lapid previously met with Shurkri in July when the two men were in Brussels for an EU conference. Lapid's visit to Egypt follows Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's meeting at Sharm al-Sheikh with Sisi in September, the first such summit between Israeli and Egyptian leaders in more than a decade. And next from the Times of Israel, savaged by Trump, Netanyahu says he had to congratulate Biden on election victory by Times of Israel staff. Opposition leader Benjamin Netanyahu on Friday said he really appreciates former United States President Donald Trump's backing for Israel after the former American leader raged at him in an expletive-led assault for congratulating U.S. President Joe Biden on his election win last year. Netanyahu explained that he had to congratulate the Democratic presidential victor for the sake of the vital U.S.-Israel relationship. Former Prime Minister Netanyahu really appreciates the great contribution that President Trump made to the State of Israel and its security, a statement from Netanyahu's office said. He also really appreciates the importance of the strong alliance between Israel and the U.S., and it was therefore important for him to congratulate the incoming president, the statement added, referring to Biden. The comments came hours after the release of comments in which Trump said Netanyahu's congratulatory message to Biden came too quickly after the election results were announced, results he continues to contest to this day. He was very early, like earlier than most. I haven't spoken to him since. F him, Trump said in an interview with journalist Barack Ravid. Netanyahu was actually quite late in congratulating Biden in November of last year, conspicuously doing so long hours after many other world leaders. Trump spoke to Ravid in April and July for the Israeli reporter's new Hebrew language book, Trump's Peace, about the normalization deals between Israel and the Arab states, which were brokered with the help of the Trump administration. Excerpts from the interview were released Friday by the Yidioth Achronot Daily ahead of the book's release Sunday. Trump's denial of Biden's election victory led him to boycott his inauguration. It also led to the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters for which the U.S. House of Representatives impeached the former president for a second time. Ravid writes for Israel's Walla news site and the Axios news site in the United States. Speaking to Ravid, the former president said no one had helped Netanyahu more than he did, and he therefore considered it a betrayal when Netanyahu congratulated Biden on his election victory, even as Trump falsely claimed that the election had been stolen. Nobody did more for Bibi, and I like Bibi. I still like Bibi, Trump said, referring to Netanyahu by his nickname. He was the man that I did more for than any other person I dealt with. But I also like loyalty first person to congratulate Biden was Bibi. And not only did he congratulate him, he did it on tape, and it was on tape. I was personally disappointed in him, he said. Bibi could have stayed quiet. He made a terrible mistake. In a further passage published on Axios, Trump elaborated, 
for Bibi Netanyahu before the ink was even dried to do a message, and not only a message, to do a tape to Joe Biden talking about their great, great friendship. They didn't have a friendship, because if they did, the Obama administration wouldn't have done the Iran deal. And guess what? Now they're going to do it again. Trump said his decision to pull out of the 2015 nuclear deal with Iran, which the current administration is seeking to return to, is because of my relations with Israel. And he claimed that he had not done so. I think Israel would have been destroyed maybe by now. Now Biden is going back to the deal because he has no clue. The Israelis fought this deal and Obama wouldn't listen to them. The decision to back out of the deal was because of my relations with Israel, not with Bibi. Those were my feelings toward Israel. Bibi did not want to make peace, Trump also said. Never did. Trump also said he had saved Netanyahu in Israel's April 2019 election by recognizing the Golan Heights as Israeli territory. That election was the first of four inconclusive national polls in two years of political chaos that lasted until Netanyahu was removed from power by the current government. Take the Golan, for example, said Trump. That was a big deal. People say that was a $10 billion gift. I did it right before the election, which helped him a lot. He would have lost the election if it wasn't for me. So he tied. He went up a lot after I did it. He went up 10 points or 15 points after I did Golan Heights. Trump's statements in the interview back up reporting by U.S. journalist Michael Wolf, who wrote in his account of Trump's presidency that he considered Netanyahu's message to Biden the ultimate betrayal. Trump raged to aides that Netanyahu congratulated Biden before the ink was dry. Wolf's book, Landslide, The Final Days of the Trump Presidency, was published in July. Trump refused to concede defeat, making unsubstantiated allegations of serious fraud and vowing to take his case to the courts, actions that ultimately encouraged his followers to storm the U.S. Capitol building in an attempt to stop the certification of Biden's election victory. Trump's apparent anger came despite Netanyahu being one of the last major world leaders to congratulate Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. After a conspicuously, uh, conspicuously long hiatus, Netanyahu issued a statement on his personal Twitter account November 8, 2020 at 7 a.m. in Israel, midnight Eastern Standard Time, more than 12 hours after U.S. media networks called the presidency for Biden. Analysts pointed out that in his tweets and subsequent remarks to the cabinet, Netanyahu did not address Biden as president-elect and did not explicitly state that the former vice president and Delaware senator had won the elections. In a second tweet, he thanked Trump for the friendship you have shown the state of Israel and me personally for recognizing Jerusalem and the Golan, for standing up to Iran, for the historic peace accords, and for bringing the American-Israeli alliance to unprecedented heights. Netanyahu had built a close relationship with Trump and his administration, his administration, which reversed decades of U.S. policy by recognizing Israeli sovereignty over Jerusalem and the Golan Heights and removing opposition to Israeli settlement building in the West Bank. Netanyahu's close ties with Trump and Republicans in his corner had led to concerns of a loss of bipartisan support for Israel in Washington. The fact that Netanyahu took 12 hours after all major American networks projected that Biden had beaten Trump and long after most world leaders had done so was a source of concern for some. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. 
This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.